Welcome to a brand new season of The Public Morality. Illegal immigration has been one of America's cyclical and retractable issues. The public discourse has morphed away from finding a viable solution to one that appeals to the emotion of voters. Putting the issue's complexity aside, the estimated 12 million undocumented immigrants have become a euphemism for racism, innuendo, conjecture, and fear. To discuss the complications surrounding illegal immigration, I'm joined by Hillary Walsh. Walsh is an immigration law attorney located in Phoenix, Arizona. Hillary Walsh, welcome to the Thank Public Morality. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I want to begin by a phrase that, that I read in some of your material. Taking the fear out of immigration, what does that mean? I think it depends on which immigrant or who's interfacing with immigration, who you talk to. But for me, my main client base is undocumented Mexicans. And there's a lot of fear baked into be, uh, uh, being here in the United States without permission, knowing that you broke the rules and having a lot of uh, remorse about that. But knowing that if you raise your hand to try to rectify um, the issue that you could find yourself permanently separated from your family. So it's a very fearful process that I, I strive to help reduce the fear. Uh, the, the current immigration debate, in my view, is one where everyone seemingly has an opinion, but immigration law, which is your specialty, is far more complex than it's portrayed in the public discourse. Uh, how, how do you see that? I wish immigration law were as easy and straightforward as the media makes it out to be but it is a complicated kind of morass of law policy. Um, it's got a lot of racial, uh, a lot of racist undertones. Um, it's very complicated. And then on top of that, it's, it's a federal issue. So anytime you change one immigration law, it changes it for everyone and getting those types of federal, um, federal changes to happen can, can be very difficult when you have a somewhat polarizing, um, topic. And in fact, you know, you look at data and I think the media makes immigration more polarizing than what it really is. Most people agree that families belong together and that we should have a system where people can legalize their status, where it's not impossible, um, to do so. Um, I think we can all get Kind of, uh, kind of link arms around that. And that does encourage me that the public opinion is actually a lot more unified than what the media might have us believe. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned race, and I, and I think it'd be, it'd be fair to say that when we think of undocumented uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants, however you want to define that, that there's a face that we put on it. That tends to be a a, a, a brown face, how much of that plays into the work that you do? In this, in, in what sense? So in the sense of, um, yeah, I think that when, when we talk about undocumented immigrants, it's usually someone, a face from Guatemala, um, El Salvador from Mexico. So all of them are very strong Hispanic faces. But when I think about racism, I think about you know, some of our very first immigration laws in this country were to exclude the Chinese. And then we still, I, I saw it again, crop up when COVID hit and we had these conversations, you know, calling it, I'm not even going to repeat the names of what people would sometimes call it, but it really harkened back to the 1800s when we had this initial bias and racism against Asians that still continues today. So, so what I'm hearing you say that in, in spite of us touting ourselves collectively as a nation of immigrants, that there's sort of a corresponding um, immigration debate that has a hint of racism that goes along with it since, since it's, immigration has been a debate. Yeah, I think in one hand, we love all of the things that immigration has brought us. And like on the right hand, we love all of that. I mean, I love all the food in this country where I, I've been stationed. My husband's in the air force. And so we've been stationed in Korea and in Japan and even in England and the food diversity is just totally lacking. So you get some really good food in these other countries, but the diversity is really lacking. You come to America and you're like, 
oh, this is one of the, this, the kind of like unmentioned benefits. And of course it's way more than food, but it's something that all of us can relate to. So we love that in the one hand. And then on the other hand, we believe a false narrative or we buy into it at least and find ourselves troubled by false narratives that immigrants are here to take our jobs or the, the one that bothers me more, which is that immigrants are here to do the jobs that Americans won't do, which is also very classist. Hmm. Uh, how so say more about that, if you would, cause I, yeah. I hear that one a lot. So yeah. Please. Yeah. I mean, I, I recently did a, a news interview with a very reputable reporter and it was hard for me to see that even she kind of believed this narrative because you could tell, and it's not my place to correct people. Um, but it, the narrative was if all the, if all the Mexicans disappeared from Southern California, who would be here to mow our lawns, trim our palm trees and wash our dishes. And that is a very classist view of who and what Mexicans are and what they contribute to the United States, whether they're immigrants, their first generation, just in general, we can be very classist in thinking that Hispanics are who clean my house and they're, they mow my grass and they do these very difficult jobs that right now we do have in the United States and kind of globally, what everyone's calling the great resignation where young people are entering the workforce and really expecting and demanding, um, living, living wages. And, um, so we, we create a, a separate class when we believe and support a narrative that only undocumented Mexicans or only, um, immigrants will do these jobs. And I think that's really toxic and is not in line with the values that I know of this country to be, which I grew up cleaning houses. I'm a white girl, but I grew up cleaning houses with my mom and that's how we put food on the table and, um, you know, diapers on my little brother. Um, but the beauty about America is that it has opportunity for those who will, for those who will act and whether you're Hispanic or white or black or Asian, if there's a job that needs to be done and you, you need resources, you can go do it. But when we, we start to almost, I guess, um, make cleaning houses a less than job or make mowing lawns a less than job, something that only those people will do. That's where that tension really riles me up because it's, it's not serving of any greater good. Hmm. Well, st staying on that theme, if you would, um, what is deemed illegal immigration is, is but a fraction of the Latino community, but it is a fraction at least in my view, has put the entire community in a bad light. Isn't this to some degree reflective of, 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 of the rhetoric sounding the, the, the larger debate that, that we just, we talked about the complexity of immigration. It's just a lot easier to just paint everybody with one brush than it really is to get into that complexity that you referenced earlier. It's so interesting how all of us, because we've seen the images so much, we all see in our minds, or, or at least you and I, we'll say all for the for the the four ears that are that are listening right now, and the the two minds that are talking right now. We both see a Hispanic face when we think of undocumented immigrants. But in my line of work, I've met undocumented immigrants from all over the world, from the farthest reaches of the world. I've met undocumented immigrants. It's that we are so close to Mexico and Central America that we hear about it more. There's easier access. It's really hard for like my clients who are undocumented from Ethiopia. They have to go through a lot to get, they have to go through Mexico to get here um, and then find themselves perhaps undocumented. Um, we have also made our laws so much harder for Mexicans to get papers in this country than most of the other countries in the world, which is ironic since we're neighbors and we do so much trade with Mexico and so many people have roots um, that, that grow in Mexico. Um, give, given your work, talking with immigration professor Hillary Walsh, uh, given your, what is the misconception that you often hear around the immigration debate? 
that I support the, the phrase that I think is that all the myths are packed into it is I support legal immigration because it implies that there is a very direct, simple path to getting your papers or getting your green card or getting legal or whatever we want to call it. It implies that there is a very simple, straightforward way of going about it. Like when you and I want to get our driver's license, it's relatively straightforward for how we go about doing that. But immigration really isn't isn't designed that way. It's almost like only the only the the most persistent survive it. And a key example of this is one of my law school classmates. She is currently petitioning for her husband who is African. And I'm 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 struggling to recollect which um I think he's Tunisian if I remember correctly, but he is a pilot for one of the major airlines um, in the world. So very skilled person. And she's a 50 year old high profile litigator in Las Vegas. And between the two of them, they make a lot of money and have no, um, no limit on the resources that they, they can spend on getting him, his green card to be able to be here. Unfortunately, the way the system is designed is they will be separated for a minimum of nine months, probably more like 18 months, even after they're married because of the way the immigration system is designed. So when people say I support immigration, but I support legal immigration, it's this like backhanded way of saying everyone needs to like, I don't, I can't appreciate because I was born here. I can't appreciate what someone else has gone through, but I'm still going to pass judgment if they don't do it the way that I think is morally correct. And that tells me that they simply don't know how hard it is to immigrate to the United States. Hmm. Um, And with that, we have even begun to talk about one of the darker sides of this illegal immigration and and that's human trafficking. Talk talk about that if you would. My, I mean, I feel very called to help people who've been victimized um, and are survivors in the United States. So this is my favorite, favorite space to be in, which is to help people who, whether it's a lot of times my clients have been trafficked by their own family members, which is just so sad. And at the same time, makes me angry enough to just keep clawing our way forward in in hope of helping people. But a lot of people will enter into, you know, a relationship. They think that everything's going to be beautiful and they find themselves in the United States cooking, cleaning, and serving. And it's very common, um, especially in, in the, at least my perception of it's very common in the Hispanic community to accept that if my husband wants to have sex with me because we're married, I have sex with him when he wants to have sex, even if I don't want to, which from my perspective is marital rape. But this is something women endure commonly in trafficking situations in particular. So their spouse will treat them like a servant. They will rape them. They will they will throw their cooking on the floor. They really will treat them like an indentured servant. And they live under the threat of, if you don't do this, I'm going to call ICE on you and you're going to be deported and you'll never see our kids again. And so they stay and they endure this and they're out functioning. You know, they come into my office and it continues to be remarkable to me where we all put on these faces of what the, what everyone else in the world expects for us to show up as. And these are women and some men as well. I mean, a lot, a lot more labor trafficking for men than sex trafficking, but these are just folks who are walking around in the grocery store next to you and me. And they've got kids sitting next to my kids in school. And I'm, I'm in awe of their tenacity and it is a great privilege to help them live free. I mean, it, it, during the time that you and I have been in conversation, I, I'm hearing you say two things that sound almost contradictory. You didn't say them specifically, but this is what I'm peeling away, that as a culture, as a society, we want people, you, you mentioned earlier about people who support legal immigration. We want people to come out of the shadows, but 
we've created policies that don't allow for that. Am, am I am I missing something there? Is 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 that accurate? You have hit the nail on the head. Say more, please. Go ahead. I think that. I think that everyone we we can all rally around the idea of let's do it the right way. I, I you know my mom and dad have helped in their in their community in Kansas. They've helped a gentleman who went back to Mexico for many years. He had to get, do a waiver and he was separated from his family. And they helped support the family while dad was in Mexico, air quote getting legal and if my mom and dad hadn't been there to pay rent for this couple and they're probably, I mean, I don't think that they've ever even told anyone. So I'm, I'm airing their good deed. Um, if they hadn't been there to do that, this couple wouldn't have been able to air quote, get legal because dad can't leave his job and all the kids and the wife who's at this, in this family was a stay at home mom to go to Mexico for over a year and a half so that he can you know, right this wrong. If we want to, you know, give judgment to his decision when he was a kid to come to the U S so we love the idea of getting legal, but we don't want to do the work to make sure that it happens. It's an inconvenience that isn't my problem. And I think that's where we're really missing that like civil civic duty component within our laws and our policies to say, this may not be my direct problem, but it is my country and I love my country men and women. And so I am going to find a way to, even if it means being mildly inconvenienced to hear about immigration reform, to find ways for us to handle this in a more civilized and, and honorable way. Because at the end of the day, the person who pays the price is a U.S. citizen kid who grows up worrying constantly that mom or dad are going to get deported or worse that I'm going to come home from school and they're going to be in a detention center and I'm not going to know what to do. Is the current immigration debate in your view, an honest one. And what I mean by that, it seems to me, and obviously I am not an immigration attorney, but it seems to me that the rhetoric is much more pernicious against those who are undocumented, but not so much for those that hire them. So that, that there seems to be an incongruence there for me. And, and I, how do you, how do you see that? Yeah, I think there, Anthony Bourdain had some really great quotes about this while he was living. And he talked about how we love Mexico and we love Mexicans and we love, you know, going to Mexico and letting our hair down and, and kind of being, ridiculous to some extent, but then we really turn our, we, we turn our gaze away from actually helping Mexicans and it is an incongruence. And I mean, we have a, we have a, a culture that accepts and expects undocumented people to serve us in these low and we pay under the table. Everyone pays cash to here in Phoenix, everyone's got to have their palm trees trimmed and their grass mowed and all these, and their roofs done and all these, um, hard labor jobs that are paid in cash. And we have created, we have created this economy that we don't want to live without, but we refuse to be inconvenienced by helping make sure that Juan or Maria get their papers because they're going to come back then and want to charge us more for the services that they provide us because now they're above the board. Um, that's not okay. We, we need to, we need to really, and I, I can't speak for everyone. I just, I think that I see that happen a lot. And that is the assumption that I have made. I would love to be proven wrong, but I think that there's a financial loss when we see all the people who are doing things for us for cheap when all of a sudden they're going to expect at least minimum wage to do those same services. There's a financial loss there that almost disincentivizes continuing this conversation of how do we help people legally immigrate? You know, as you were giving your last answer, I was thinking about a previous answer when you, you opened by talking about 
you know, historically, how immigration has impacted the country historically. And I was thinking that historically, from an economic side, I mean, one of the dirty little secrets has been that there's a part of the economy, the American economy, that has always depended on cheap labor, whether it's African-American chattel slavery or the, the Chinese and the railroads. And here we are with the Latino community. We, there's a part of us that always depends on cheap labor. Your thoughts? I mean, that is, that's backed by data and by science. And I think that it's a trend that is undeniable. So human trafficking is what built America on the back of Africans. And we still don't really want to have a frank, or we're still struggling and grappling with having a frank conversation about that in many places in the United States. And it's a trend that has continued and not that I could ever liken um, you know, s- stolen, kidnapped, and trafficked Africans to undocumented immigrants because, you know, many undocumented immigrants have at least chosen to come here and Africans did not. What I can say is that we, ref- I think that it's so interesting when we don't give the vote to people who are building our country. And those are parallels for me that are undeniable. As a child, I was very fascinated by the Underground Railroad and very inspired by Harriet Tubman. And I think that on some level, we have an Underground Railroad and a Move North movement happening again here in the United States. It is, of course, not the same. It's just for me, there are parallels that I I can't help but notice. They say that history repeats itself. And I think that to some extent, it, it has here again, where we have created so many problems because of our policies from the United States in Mexico and many countries in Central America. And now people are fleeing North to try to get protection. And I just want to be on the right side of being, uh, Kansas was neutral in the civil war. I don't want to be neutral. I want to be on the right side of history. And part of that is I believe I was born on purpose for a purpose so that I could be an immigration lawyer in today's climate to help people who, whether they're trafficked, whether they are living in a home where they're married to a U.S. citizen who who threatens to call ICE on them every single day if they don't do exactly what that spouse says, and that is something that happens all the time. Um, kids do the same thing to their U.S. citizen. Kids do the same thing to their parents who are undocumented. This is a this is a system that is designed to keep people small and to keep them from living the life that I believe God created them to live. So it's time to find a way to break these invisible shackles so that this is a demographic who can rise up and be seen and be elected um, and have representation. And so they no longer, when they imagine what, what their life is like, what their potential is, and they hear undocumented immigrant and they imagine someone who looks just like them, think how limiting that is for that person. I don't want that for young black men in America. And I certainly don't want that for young Hispanics in America either. It it almost sounds listening to you like a political game in the sense that that at the expense of people's lives, because the many of the businesses that depend on those that are currently undocumented are largely not exclusively, but largely supportive financially of those whose rhetoric stands in opposition to those who 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 are documented am i missing something there you have a closer look so give me your thoughts on that am i well pitch me the question again because i want to make sure i understand it sure uh i'm just gonna xyz corporation in in um fresno uh, California depends on as agriculture business. They depend on undocumented workers. XYZ Corporation supports Candidate Y, who is vehemently opposed rhetorically uh, uh, against, you know, so-called illegal immigrants. But they support him financially, so it's sort of key, so it's like a political game that it keeps these wages low. It doesn't allow the people. You talked about to to rise above so they can ask for higher wages. And so it's sort of an insidious game at the expense of other people is what I'm is what I'm getting at. I I agree. I think that 
when we, when we saw those, it's a similar conversation to when it was time for us to really think about how all men and women are created equal. And it was time to free humans who had been trafficked and enslaved in the United States. And here we have a similar, it's not the same, but we have a similar unspoken agreement and immigration reform is today's version of, we need an emancipation proclamation in order to help free a demographic of people who are outstanding humans, deserve to have legal status in the United States. And our laws really can provide for that. And on, on top of all of it, economically, it all makes sense from an economics perspective. But again, I go back to what I believe are American values and American values embedded in our constitution say that we're created equal. Why am I in 2022 watching everyone in the United States seemingly, you know, turn an eye to the fact that we're treating a population of people in a way that does not have equality. And why are we okay with that? Other than there is some type of financial gain there, or there's some type of, um, limiting belief that if we help all these people get their papers, you know, they came in the illegal way. We're going to reward this behavior and teach everyone else. Like when we talk about amnesty, that's always everyone's kind of concern with amnesty is it, it's going to train people that they can break the law and that we'll forgive it later. And I'm like, what, what happened to the year of Jubilee? <laughs> like we talk about this in the old Testament. What happened to that? Everybody loves that when it's for them, but nobody wants it for somebody else. And that's human nature. We all have those types of things that we got to grapple with. But when I look at this system and I think about who the United States is, not just for me and my family and you and yours, but on a global scale and what the country is that I want to leave behind, it's a country that deals with the difficult issues right here and right now. We don't kick the can and we figure out a way to help people live free. And for me, free, baked into freedom is equality. Um, I'm, I'm wondering is the unauthorized status of, of, of many individuals made worse because there are not enough available visas to meet the economic demand for their labor. And, and if that's incorrect, please correct me. Explain that, please. Thank you. The There are, are millions of people in line, in the legal line, to come to the United States just based on their family members having status here in the United States and petitioning for them. Like if my mom and dad were Mexican, I could petition for my mom and dad and they would get in this line that is probably about two and a half years long right now. And they would wait and they would probably not have permission to travel here between here and there. And we would just have to wait. So if something goes wrong, maybe I need help with my kids. Mom and dad couldn't come here to help take care of them. They have to wait until they just get their spot in line. So there are millions of people who are tied up in that legal line. And then in terms of work visas, that's a whole other animal. I deal in a space that's mostly um, humanitarian based, a lot of uh, human trafficking victims, um, a lot of victims of crime in the United States, and then family-based petitions for moms, dads, brothers, sisters, and kids. But the employment space is... I don't even crack into it because it is a whole other animal and it is mind-blowingly complex in the sense of all of our worker visas are a second priority to the family-based petitions. So all of the people who are in the line at the same consulate who adjudicates not just the work visas, but also the family-based petitions, that line is like two years long if I want to petition for mom and dad. It's even longer for the second priority people, which are folks who are wanting to come to the U.S. because an employer has petitioned for them to come work. And we're, we're really feeling the burn, not just because there are family members who would normally be here in the United States to work, but because we're so slow and um, inefficient in processing our worker visas. So right now we have, I always go to this example, but it is the truck driver issue that we have in the United States, we can't fill truck seats because, and we haven't for years. And so we're paying 40 and $50 an hour to truck drivers. 
and can't fill those seats because it's largely been a demographic who's retiring. And yet everybody wants their Amazon package delivered same day or next day. So we have a high demand and no one is filling the seat, but we have so many people who are eligible to drive trucks, but our immigration system is so busted that we can't get them here because we're going about this like it's the 1970s still. Uh, much, much was made about former President Trump's policies on authorized immigration. And, and, and a lot of that, in my, in my view, was due to his rhetoric. Um, my question to you as a policy matter, how much has the Biden administration changed on undocumented workers as a matter of policy? On undocumented workers? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it, is, it, is, is it still as pernicious as it was presu- uh, presumed on the previous administration? Have they done some things that made it better? Or have they just toned down the rhetoric, but the policies are still the same? Overall, the Biden administration has made a lot of steps that were very similar to those of the Obama administration. I would say they're uh, within within the same vein, 100%, in the sense of border policy, and then folks who are here and perhaps in removal proceedings. So they're actively, the government is trying to deport them, really trying to prioritize people with significant criminal history to, to fast track those, the removal of those undocumented immigrants, um, over let's say, you know, Maria who has no criminal history and has six U S citizen children, we really don't need to prioritize her removal um, over someone who has, let's say, a significant drug trafficking charge. The Biden administration has made steps toward that, and that's kind of been blocked by federal courts. There's been a lot of litigation that has hamstrung the Biden administration from implementing the policies that it's wanted to. And um, so it's been hard to for the Biden administration to get traction to undo some of what the Trump administration set into place. For context, everybody and anybody who was not supposed to be here was a priority under the Trump administration. So if you just had a, you know, you had overstayed your visa by a week and you were not supposed to be here, you were on the same footing for being a priority to be deported as someone who was a terrorist. So it's been it's been challenging for the Biden administration to get some traction because of of federal litigation. Talk about the migrant protection protocols um, and its impact on on this large immigration conversation. I think this will be something we look back on in history. So the might just for for context, the we call it MPP, and it, just to simplify for our we use lots of acronyms uh, as as most agents government agency people do. But the Migrant Protection Protocol really, it really is, I think it's going to, we're going to look back and and think how sad that that's something that we did because we couldn't rectify immigration. Um, We couldn't, we couldn't reform our immigration policies. So for context, that was a program that if you came from the Southern border to seek asylum in the United States, you would essentially get like you know, when you go to the, this is my second reference to the DMV, apparently it's scarred me for life, but you go to the DMV or a doctor's office and they give you a ticket and they say, when your t- when your number is called, come on up. And that's essentially what they did with the MPP program is you got to the Southern border, you came in where you would ordinarily say, I would like to seek asylum. They would bring you in and give you an interview to make sure that you passed this initial screening to make sure you weren't trying to scam the immigration system. And then they would make a decision from there. Instead, they said, okay, thanks for letting me know. I'm not going to ask you any questions about this, but I'm going to give you this uh, court date or whatever, this like little ticket, and you can come back tomorrow or whatever date you're supposed to. And you can do court from in Mexico. We're not going to let you in the United States. You're going to do it by video conference with a judge who is sitting in the United States, but appearing by video. And... It is a complete overlooking of all of the components that an immigration lawyer has to, or, or really someone who's representing themselves 
it is so challenging to represent yourself by video when you perhaps haven't been, um, you haven't been to school. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but we didn't have computers when I was in school. We had electronic uh, keyboards that we learned to type on. But for most people who were coming to the southern border to seek asylum, they don't have much of an education in the in a modern sense. And even for those who do, like Ukrainians who are coming um, to seek asylum at the southern border, if they were to be put in that program, how would they know what U.S. asylum law is in order to prove their claims? from Mexico while living in tent cities. So, I mean, I could go on, but I'll suffice to say that I believe we will look back in history and we will really put our head, our head in our hands and say, this was, this is an embarrassment. You, you mentioned a term and I'd like for you to clarify for our listeners, if you would, um, you talk about asylum seekers and talk about how those are different than those that may come here, say for economic opportunities and, and does their presence couple with these current laws? And how does asylum seekers impact this larger immigration policy, I guess? Sure. Asylum seekers are folks who are fleeing their home country because they're in danger. Folks who come because they want work opportunities sometimes are also fleeing danger. So there is some overlap there. They may, they may not come and say, um, people who are coming to work, for example, may not come to the U.S. and think, I'm I'm fleeing for my life and I'm also going to come here and work because they don't realize that in every country, it's not like my country. I'll use an example growing up in Kansas. Um, you know, every summer, everyone is very consumed with harvest. It is a way of life in Kansas. Everything revolves around harvest, probably some of Oklahoma as well. If, if I had never left Kansas, I would have assumed that other states and other countries also are consumed by some type of agricultural event every summer because that's when everything's ripe and ready. Similarly, if I have a young man in Guatemala, tiny country overrun by gang violence, who he's being recruited to go into the gangs and for at least a generation, this has become so common in Guatemala. He doesn't realize I'm fleeing for my life. He instead thinks I'm coming to the United States to work when in reality he is fleeing for his life. So I guess I, I, I want to just pull out the, the nuance there because it is an important one to consider. But in terms of asylum seekers, we have about a million people who ordinarily would be in the United States and have work authorization while they're waiting for their court date to seek asylum. And these are bona fide asylum seekers who passed what we call a credible fear screening interview at the border. It's kind of what I was describing a few minutes ago. Those people would ordinarily be here, but because of um, Trump administration policies, they're still on the Southern border. So we do have about a million people missing from our workforce because of these policies. And when we look at a labor shortage in the United States, we really feel that. Um, and then the other thing we haven't discussed um, thus far, how has COVID changed this narrative or has it changed the narrative as it relates to policy and in, 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 in detention centers specifically? Detention centers were a scary place in the initial stages of the pandemic. Um, I remember personally going into a detention center wearing, you had to wear protective eye gear, um, a mask and rubber gloves, some type of gloves. And so I went um, I, and I didn't want to go into the detention center. Um, I felt very uncomfortable doing so, but the judge wouldn't grant a continuance for my Indian client. It was his final hearing. And if we didn't show up, he was just going to be ordered, removed and deported. So we really had no choice, but to proceed. And this was in 2020. So I remember getting my husband's weed eater glasses just, you know, you can imagine big, clear, very fashionable, um, uh, weed eater glasses, a painter's mask. Um, this was before masks were, in 95s and all of the other, you know, masks were being mass produced because it was so early in the pandemic and, um, you know, rubber gloves that you use to, you know, do what you must, um, around the home. 
and going and prepping my client for his final interview. Meanwhile, he had no protective gear. So he's in the detention center being constantly exposed to who knows what. And then they started shutting it down. They started shutting the detention centers down where you couldn't go see your clients. You could talk to them by phone only. And if one person in their cell group, because they're, these are basically like prisons. So if one person, your bunkie gets COVID, you're all um, going to be quarantined and you're going to be quarantined together with the person who has COVID. So you're probably going to get it too. Um, it was a very dangerous time for, um, for immigration representatives, for the detainees, and also for the people who were working in those conditions. I really feel for those government workers. And some of them are private workers because these have been privatized, but in any event, a lot of people were on the front lines of that and it was very dangerous. What is title 42? Oh man, Title 42. So Title 42 is part of our federal immigration, uh, federal laws. And it relates to, you know, back when we had other community, other, you know, very, very contagious diseases and basically says that if it's in the national best interest of the nation to shut down immigration because of contagious diseases, it authorizes the president to do so. This we had obviously not had a pandemic um, in a very long time. And so President Trump shut down the southern border and said that basically no one, I don't care if you're here to seek asylum. I don't care if you have the best claim in the world. It's still being used right now. And I don't care if you're from Ukraine. I use that as an example because we can not even imagine what's going on in Ukraine. And then to think these are people who are at our southern border who are being caught and returned to Mexico under Title 42 in the name of we don't want to pass COVID around. And it's September 2022. So Title 42 gives the president the authorization. And then CBP, um, Border Patrol, Border Protection, is who carries that out. And it's still being carried out today. Mm. Uh from from your perspective, and given the work you do, how much if we just if we were to sort of minimize this debate, how much of the debate, in your view, is an honest difference of opinion as 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 the way to approach complicated policy, uh, or just political rhetoric that's titillating people to vote? I am convinced that there is more than enough opportunity for immigrants and Americans alike, and that we will all win one way or the other, not, not just collectively, but individually. When immigrants, if we were to have immigration reform and the things that get people fired up is this conversation about immigrants are here taking my job. I mean, 20, over 20% of our, um, tech workforce is comprised of legal immigrants who have their papers and everything else, but they're helping invent the next iPhone. We don't see China inventing iPhones. We see China knocking them off. I want to remain an innovative country. And I know that when I get the best and the brightest from around the world, America remains the innovator and everybody else can go be the knockoff. Um, the, the conversation that convinces people, that immigration is a bad thing or that immigrants are doing something that's taking away from them is something that keeps Americans small. It keeps them believing that there's not enough. And I believe because of my faith, because of what I see every single day, because of my own life story growing up in poverty and now having a multi-million dollar business just off the sweat of my brow and the belief in my heart, I believe that there is more than enough opportunity for those who will act. And when we, when we take those steps of faith, when we use the talents that God or the universe or spirit or Allah, whoever has given us, when we use those things, that's when, you know, we talk about making America great. That's our, our source of greatness. It is the collective together that makes it something that's historically remarkable. Well, well, well some, I mean, 
I, I'm assuming some of the uh, uh, pushback to what you just said so eloquently was, well, it's, it's it, using President Trump's, former President Trump's words, um, it's not that he has a problem with immigration, but he wants more immigration from Northern Europe. Um, I mean, that's one of the things he said, as opposed to all this brown immigration that's coming. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I don't think people from Sweden are wanting to immigrate to the United States because the system is so impossible um, and their countries are providing great resources for them, like, you know, a year of paid maternity leave simply because you have a baby and healthcare op opportunities and education opportunities. I mean, if you want to be from a business perspective, if I look at the United States like a business and I'm wanting to attract a different audience, I have to change my messaging. And President Trump perhaps wants to change the messaging, but then doesn't have the follow through um, for the, across the board to actually attract people from the developed from developing or from developed countries because we we refuse to you know we still have the the death penalty for example which you know we're in bad company when we look at the other countries who still have the death penalty it's those types of things where if you really want to attract a different audience of immigrants to the United States then you got to start showing up in a different way now that's not to say that people who are still attracted to the United States aren't outstanding or anything uh, any slight anywhere else it is however to say let's also not be racist. Let's not say I want all the white immigrants and I don't want any of the people of color immigrants because they're from bad um, whole countries. Like we, <laughs> uh, we have, um, you know, I've not been to Haiti, but I have friends and family who have been, and I've got clients who are Haitian. And that's when that that's one of the, the bad whole countries that he referred to. And uh, it just is remarkable to me is the only word that I can really use. It's remarkable that when I look through what the statement is, it's, I don't want poor black people coming to the United States when I could have rich white people. And when we cut through the crap, I'm not okay with that. Cause that's not supportive of American values. Given your work as an immigration lawyer, um, and, and understanding the policy as you do, how many people have you encountered that say, I just want to come to America, you know, for its social benefits? People regard the United States education system so highly and the safety with which one can exist in the United States. I think we really take it for granted. Um, I take it for granted. I don't know about you, but I definitely take it for granted. Um, and I know that not everybody is walking around safe, that it still remains very dangerous in lots of places in the United States. But as a whole, we have a lot of really great things going for us and we have a, we still have work to do. Uh, I mean, I don't think that Michael Jordan decided one day in practice that he's just, I'm good. I don't actually, I'm going to be the goat, but I'm just not going to go to practice today. I'm not going to continue to improve on this, even though I'm probably going to get one more ring. Instead, him, Kobe, any of the greats, it continued to be, how can we improve? How can we be more innovative? I'm going to bring in Tim Grover to be my personal trainer and be the very first person in the NBA to have my own personal individual trainer because I'm going to another level. I want that kind of innovation in the way we operate as a country. And I know we have it, but it has to be injected into our culture where when people come here because they're so excited to see their kids get a great education and not worry that their kid's going to get trafficked into a gang and become some type of, you know, drugged up monster killing people, they come here for that hope and that freedom. And it was a beacon of hope for the Irish. And it's a, it continues to be a beacon of hope for um, Hispanics today. The social services are an important component, but I think that the drive to work and the ability to work and make something of myself that blows through all the class ceilings 
is what people continue to come to America for. It really is. It might be cheesy, but it's still the American dream. And I don't know about you. I think that you're, you're a piece of the American dream too, in your life. Um, finally, when, when you listen and participate in this immigration debate, are you convinced that both sides want a similar outcome, just have different ways of getting at it? Or, 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 or is this debate, in your view, two different conversations? I think that for a long time, the middle, you know, we look at, we look at a lot of social change, especially during the 1960s and moderates were a huge hindrance to making positive social change. Today, however, I think that moderates could actually be the key to social change because the moderate, the group of moderate, if we have, you know, bright yellow on the left and bright red on the right and in the middle is green where the overlap is green is bigger than the the yellow and the red on the on the edges and in the middle everyone agrees that people should be treated with dignity with equality and that families belong together and if we take those values and we go to the senate floor and say this is how we're going to change this like right now, if, if I want to fix my status and I'm here from Mexico, when I leave, I have to be outside. The, when I leave to go fix my papers, I have to be outside the U.S. for 10 years. I am punished. It's called a punishment in Spanish. I'm punished for 10 years for being outside the United States. And then I can ask to come back if I don't, if I can't qualify for some type of waiver or forgiveness of that 10 years. Like we need to eliminate those types of things because we want to see, I believe in grace in all things. And there has to be more grace in our immigration laws if we support legal immigration. Hillary Walsh, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the public morality. We, we've definitely uh, benefited from, from your wise insights. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.